Well, good morning. Um, it's amazing to be able to worship in song. And as we continue our worship in prayer, and then we'll be looking later as we worship God through hearing His Word. And I don't, I don't know which one I'm more nervous about, talking about prayer this morning or talking about the sermon. So it's just going to all be kind of an interesting morning. Um, because I stand here this morning uh, as your white male pastor. And in the midst of everything that's gone on in our country since Ferguson, that's been a difficult position. Because I love you guys. And I love this city and all of its diversity. And I don't even know how to talk about it. I don't know how to express what I really feel in my heart. I don't have a Twitter feed or Facebook to be able to kind of even talk about it publicly and socially. But I've read a lot about many things going on. And this morning as I was uh, able to have a conversation with my African-American sister that was here. Isn't that a, it's a, it's a good phrase right there. I was able to have a conversation with my African-American sister because I truly do love her and I want to listen and I think that that's been kind of what God's given me is a, a platform to listen and just to be there and to care and to just to pray and to continue to love and support everyone in this um, that's going through this and so this morning that's what we're, we're praying about is the situation in our country and the situation in our own city um, a couple of media outlets picked up this one person's Twitter feed out of New Orleans this week it was really interesting because this same tweet was picked up by a couple of different news outlets and it was saying let's not be like hashtag Charlottesville let's be like hashtag Durham let's keep it peaceful I was like yeah that's awesome Durham is getting a name out there for speaking its voice in peace and I, I liked that I liked that we can talk about things openly and I hope that as a church we continue that posture of being a listening ear all of us no matter our ethnicity no matter where we are God has placed us and so I am heavy-hearted about it but I also rejoice that we are able to have this conversation in peace and so this morning, I want to pray that God will continue to give us wisdom, that God will continue to allow us as a church to know how to reach this city, how to listen well, how to work together to serve, how to continue to bless this city as a church, because our ultimate goal as Christians as those who are, as Pastor Lawrence preached out of 1 Peter, a chosen race. See, we are a new type of people. 
And we get to talk about this because our ultimate goal is to glorify our Lord Jesus in this place and to make Him famous. Not anyone else, not anything else, but Jesus Christ alone. And we have an awesome task as a church. And we have an awesome name as a church. Because in this city, people know Waypoint for who we are as a loving, diverse body of people who are here to love and serve. And so, keep it up. Keep it up. God has given us a great platform for this. So let's pray together that He will continue to increase that. Lord, this morning, we know that we are a broken people. And we know that all of creation also cries out in pain because of the brokenness of sin which has truly intoxicated this world. And racism and injustice is a great sin. And we proclaim that and stand against it as a church because we are also sinners. So we relate because all of us have our own junk that we have to work through, Lord. We know that. And we want to keep talking about that. We want it to be on the forefront of our minds that we are wholly different from You and that we are sinners. And You are wholly different from us and that You are a holy and righteous God and judge of all the earth. And yet in Your great mercy... Through Jesus Christ, you've lavished upon us grace upon grace and unrelentless mercy and love. And so as the body of Jesus Christ on this earth, I pray, Father, that you will give us love like you love. That you allow us to see through the eyes of Jesus that we will seek justice and love mercy and to walk humbly before our God. I pray for the leadership of this church to continue to have wisdom and leading in this charge. We pray that the gospel message of the good news of Jesus will be proclaimed clearly and effectively throughout this entire city, and that this will be a great opportunity to proclaim the one name that is above every name, and that is the name of Jesus Christ. And so this morning we pray that You will give us the strength and the wisdom to carry on in this way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, to my second trepidatious venture this morning is to preach the Word of God. And I am always very... uh, Just nervous about that as I approach the Word of God, and so we pray that God will continue to help us see Him glorified this morning. And so, um, right now, I'm on currently on a quest. A quest to figure out what it means to go through midlife. And so for some of you young folks, you're, you're not quite sure that 
that's relevant to you or whatever, well, you'll be there one day. You won't recover as quickly from injury and sickness. You will have many things that occupy your time, and you will wonder, how will I survive one of the great tragedies of America, and that is midlife? Well, I don't want to enter midlife unprepared. I want to actually try to um, make it there with some preparation. So, in the midst of all that right now, I'm studying this book with a friend. It's called 4040 Vision, because I'm almost 40. And this is written by Peter Greer, who is the president of Hope International. And he's talking about what it means to walk through midlife and how to have a vision for your life through the decade of your 40s. So I recommend it for all you uh, ladies and gentlemen out there that are about to step into that trial of life and to be able to understand how to be prepared, how to not lose your mission in midlife is the subtitle, and how to definitely know what's coming ahead. Maybe you're, not, maybe you're not aware of what's coming, but you can be prepared so that God can use these years. Now, I say all that because in the midst of this, I've been in ministry 20 years, and I was wondering one day, what is it like for the next 20 to 25 years before I get to the age where I can't remember anything? I'm just kidding. So what would it be like to go another 20 years, another 30 years in ministry? What, what skills and practices do I need in order to make it? So I gathered around me a couple of older men who had been in ministry for 100 years or more. Again, just kidding. And um, just ask these older men that were in ministry, how, how do you make it? How do you keep going? How do you press on? And both of the, these two men that I talked to said to me the same exact things in different words. They said, on one hand, you need to have a very strong theology of Sabbath rest. You need to understand the rhythms and cycles of the Sabbath in order to not wear yourself down and burn yourself out, because you will. And that's instructive for all of us, young or old, is understanding how God created the Sabbath. So I went on a journey of trying to understand the Sabbath and began to place in my life very um, orderly types of Sabbath rests throughout my weeks and my months and my year in order to keep going. Then they also said, on the second hand, you need to have a very strong theology of pain and suffering. Not only will you experience pain and suffering in your own life, but the people in your congregation will also experience a great deal of pain and suffering, and they will be relying on you to take them through that journey. So, okay. So I started working on that as well. I didn't realize that the classroom of pain and suffering would be so intense in our own lives, and we will talk about that at some point this morning. But as Pastor Lawrence asked me to step in today and talk about our next section of 1 Peter and our study of 1 Peter, it just happened to be 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. It will also be on the screen behind me in the ESV. 
This is interesting, because here again, probably my third sermon that has come, this topic has come up. And as I look at what God has been doing in our own lives as a family, I decided as this um, passage comes up, it's talking about suffering as a Christian. Today we're talking about what it means to, for suffering in the church. I decided to just kind of take you guys on a little journey. Now, I can, it's not, can, cannot be comprehensive. I cannot give you a comprehensive theology of pain and suffering this morning in just a short amount of time I have. But I hope to give you a glimpse into some of the things that God's been teaching me so that you can start on your own. Because I think that a, th a theology of the Sabbath rest and a theology of pain and suffering is important for the church. And I think it will carry us far. So let's look at this passage together. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12-19 through 19 say this. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. That's God's word to us in all of its perfection. And so we're able to stand here before God and before the church and look at this. So it says this, number one, verses 12 and 16, fiery trials and tests will come to the church. He says, he starts it off, beloved. He's talking to Christians. And then he says this, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. Not if, not a possibility, but when it comes. These fiery trials are going to come to the church. So don't be surprised. If you belong to Christ's church, then you will face trial. Kind of what we signed up for. Jesus said, part of the Christian life is to take up your cross daily and follow me. A cross is not a pleasant thing. He didn't say take up your cup of joe and your lay and go to Honolulu and follow me. He said, take up your cross so this word, this, these two words, fiery trial, are actually one word in the Greek uh, language. And it's actually the word purosis. You hear the word in there? Purosis. It's also the same word found in Revelation chapter 3, verse 18, where Jesus talks about refined gold. Gold that has been purified. Gold that has been cleansed. Pure gold. So this word is purify. Look back. Look back at 1 Peter chapter 1. 
Look at verses 6 and 7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This fiery ordeal comes upon us to prove us, to test us. A story about a silversmith who was once asked, how do you know when you've put the silver through the fire enough? How do you know when it's time? And he replied, I know because I look into it. And when I can see my face in it, when I can see my own face reflected, I know it's been through enough. I know it's pure. In the same way, Jesus looks upon us and he says, when I've tested you and I can see my own face reflected in the body, in the church, I know that I've tested it enough. You see, the fire burns away what we call dross. The fire threatens the impurities. The fire threatens to be a separating force from what is pure and what is impure. You see, the fire, also in our life, if we continue this analogy, it threatens our idols. Drossing out my false allegiances shows me that my obedience and trust in Christ can be costly. It is costly to remove idols from your life. I have to let go of some things. So am I in this? Am I in Christianity for me or for Jesus? What am I in this life for? I must be burned up and become less while Christ becomes more and is more pure in my affections. That's the goal of this. Now, that's not an easy thing. It's not that these trials and these sufferings are just going to be a cakewalk for us. It's going, to be a, it's going to be painful in some ways. It says here, back to chapter 4, um, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. That word test means to prove, to poke, or to pierce. I used to live in Senegal, West Africa. And at one point we were traveling to a remote part of Senegal, away from the tribal area where we were. So my team and I, we spoke this one tribal language. But when you moved out of that tribe, to, or out of that tribal area to a different area, we didn't have language. And so we were traveling, we stopped at this roadside restaurant. The menu was in French. We didn't speak French. The wait, the wait staff spoke Wolof. We did not speak Wolof. And so we're stuck trying to order food at this restaurant. So my supervisor, his name is Philip, he's looking at the menu and he sees this French word steak. Okay, steak. That's what I want. I want steak. It actually said steak tartare. He's okay, perfect. Steak. That's what I want. So order steak. It comes out on a plate. And it's this red, 
ground beef, raw and cold, with a divot in the top with a raw egg. And he looks at the guy, and of course we cannot communicate at all. He looks at the guy and he says, cook it. Just cook it. The guy's looking at him like, what? He said, cook it. Put it on the fire and cook it. So the guy takes the plate away, goes back to the kitchen. A few minutes later, the plate comes back. There's a scrambled egg on one side and this brown beef patty. When he cuts into it, though, it's still pink and looks just like, you know, the, the ground beef when it goes through the thing. It's like these little fingers. And it's still cold in the middle. And he's going, what is going on here? So there's black pepper on the table. So he's like, look, it's all about your mind. So he takes and he covers the thing in black pepper. Just, I mean, coats it, mixes it all in. The whole thing's black. And he says, now it's cooked. And he eats it. Well, we come to find out that steak tartare means raw beef. And the guy's looking at us like we're crazy to ask him to cook steak tartare. People actually eat this. I went online to find pictures of it. I meant to have one for you to see. Forgot it. Um, people actually eat this. It's like a thing. And I mean, it's fine. I'm learning more and more that more that people foodies eat like raw things and like where I'm from in the mountains we cook stuff <laughs> so um, I want my meat to be done you know what I mean so I like cut into it to make sure that it's done through like I go to restaurants and they're like I'm with certain people that will remain unnamed at this point and they're like what kind of where do you want your steak and they're like rare and I'm going, they were like, look at me, like, what do you want? How do you want your steak? I'm like, well done. And the people looking at me are like, there's not going to be any flavor left. And I'm like, yours is bloody. I mean, I'd rather taste like meat than blood. But anyway, I want to cut into my meat. I want to poke it. I want to pierce it. I want to slice that steak open. I want to make sure those burgers are cooked. All right. So, you know, at, at Thanksgiving, we poke the turkey with that big thermometer. We want that bird to be hot on the inside. Well, this is what this word means in the Greek. It means to test it. It means to prove it. It means to stick it in there, to cut it open, to make sure that this thing is done. All the bacteria has been cooked out of this sucker. That's what Jesus is talking about. Purifying the church. Metals are put into the fire to create this separation. Meat is cut open to make sure all the bacteria is cut out. You know, it's interesting. I was, I was looking at this and just having some conversations. Jeremiah was a fiery preacher. And in Jeremiah chapter 2, he's calling out Israel for their idols. And he says this in verses 27 and 28. He's talking about how they, they say... To their idols. You say to a tree, You are my father, and to a stone, you gave me birth. For they have turned their back to me and not their face. But in the time of their trouble, they say, Arise and save us. Well, where are your gods that you made for yourself? Let them arise if they can save you in your time of trouble. For as many as your cities are your gods, O Judah. 
So Jeremiah was preaching this sermon to them, talking about their idols. We Americans have plenty of our own idols, don't we? Our wealth, our materialism, just the, the way we live our lives, lavished. These are harder idols to see than looking at a piece of wood and saying, you know, this piece of wood, you are my father. I bow to you. And we think of that as paganism. When in reality, what would happen if our bank accounts were drained, our houses were taken away, we no longer had our nice clothes, our comfortable shoes, our warm lattes? I'm, I'm just as guilty. I mean, I've spent a lot of time at Bean Traders, all right? I know. I know that this is a problem. I see it strong when I travel. And then I'm in cultures where I don't have my air conditioning, I don't have my comfortable bed, it's hot, I don't even have cold water to drink. And I recognize I have things that I rely on that are deep-seated in me. So Tim Keller was talking about this sermon that Jeremiah preached, and he said, he's talking about these idols. He's saying, you know, here's God, he's talking about idols in America, here's God and here's pleasure. Here's God, and here's popularity. Here's God, and here's status. Here's God, and here's physical comfort. Here's God, and here's intellectual respectability. You see, you follow God, and at some point, you're going to have to choose between those things somewhere. And when you're in the choosing, that's when you're in the fire. See, we have divided hearts. And therefore, we need to be refined in order to remove impurities and live freely in purity before the Lord. Yet, sometimes we don't even know what these idols are. But God knows. And so my allegiances need to be separated so that my faith in Christ can be sure and can be bold. So that was point number one. Fiery trials and tests will come upon the church. Secondly... Verses 13 through 15. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Rejoice in the sharing of Christ's sufferings. That's point number two. Rejoice in the sharing of Christ's sufferings. We rejoice, church, that we participate in the sufferings of Christ. This is, this is the where biblical theology comes into play here. This is a note here for, for those of you who want to understand the theology behind this. In Christ's afflictions, He's not separated from His body. You see, we're called, we look at the theology of Scripture and we talk about the church being the body of Christ. This is how we understand this now. So, we're not he, Christ is not separated from His body, the church. And so... It's not, suffering is not confined to the person of Jesus Christ alone as the head of the body, but it's to his whole body, the head of the body and the body of the church. So beginning at the head, which is Christ, and to the members of the body of Christ, which is the church, these things follow in order. So this is what it means to be conformed to Christ, who is, says, firstborn among his brethren. Death and affliction bring life and sanctification. 
That's the theology behind this. So when we see Christ suffering, it follows true that the body will suffer, the church. So it doesn't say that we have to be happy in our suffering. It doesn't say that we have to rejoice that there's pain, but it's saying rejoice in Christ's sufferings for the church. Um, Keller also said, he's saying rejoice because as a Christian, just as the sufferings of Christ gave him that name, which is above every name, just as the sufferings of Jesus Christ were redemptive, just as when he handled the sufferings obediently, he was rightly exalted. And you are in the same pattern. You're part of the same party. You're walking in the same shoes. You're supposed to rejoice that you're making progress. You're supposed to rejoice in all things. So that's the second point. Rejoice in the sharing of Christ's sufferings. And the third thing, be prepared, not surprised by suffering. Look at that. Verse 12 again. Do not be surprised. You see, surprise, being surprised or being caught off guard by suffering will crush you. This is what it did to me. And I'm going to share about that in just a minute. So the rest of the time this morning, I want to just help us understand how to be prepared. First of all, how to be prepared. First preparation, focus. Focus on the refiner. Lock eyes with the lover of your soul. And do this before the suffering, but especially during suffering. Second way to be prepared is to know. Have knowledge of what is coming. Man, we have a future glory prepared for us in heaven. One day there will be no more pain. There will be no more suffering. There will be no more tears. We have this future glory prepared for us. The third way to be prepared is to understand the diverse forms of suffering. So let's look at some of these. And I can't give you a comprehensive view of this. There's no way in a short amount of time, but I just want to share a few things. First of all, suffering in its diverse forms. The first one is suffering we, we bring on ourselves because of our failures and sin. Uh, if, I, if I thought I was going to be a better pastor by being condemning and judgmental, if that, if that was my real thought, and I was always pointing my finger at everybody, then I'm eventually going to lose friends, allies, and in, in reality, my ministry, right? So I would bring that upon myself. Uh, Jonah did this. He ran from God in disobedience, which brought a corrective storm into his life. Where he and then he refused to love the nations that God had called him to, which brought a worm that destroyed his shade tree. This is brought on to him by this disobedience. Jonah, um, David violates God's law, has an affair, and suffers for it. So there's no... Now we've got to remember Romans 1 here. There is no condemnation for those who follow Jesus Christ. So these, these sufferings that are brought onto ourselves aren't condemning. They don't condemn us to hell. 
But they, God does use this type of suffering to get our attention about the world's brokenness and our own sin. So the response to that type of suffering is repentance. We repent. We turn away. The second type of suffering is one that comes by way of betrayal, attacks, or persecution. This type of suffering is when your testimony or circumstances in your life uh, like broken marriage, affairs, broken family relationships, bring um, this type of suffering onto you. So Jeremiah, for example, was beaten and put in the stocks for speaking the truth. Paul was beaten countless numbers of times for preaching the gospel. Many of us, many of you, are walking through this suffering through broken family relationships, hardships in marriage, or even strained friendships. This is the response to this type of suffering is forgiveness. Somebody in your life has brought this injustice and suffering to you. Needs you need for yourself to forgive them. Another type of suffering is suffering that comes through loss. When we lose someone or something, it often brings suffering and depression, crushing us with grief. When my when my grandfather died when I was 16 years old, he was kind of a father figure in my life. It's crushed me. Even to this day, I still cling to those moments and walking through that. Many of you are walking through similar things. You've lost a loved one. People lose homes through fire or whatever. We lose things and it brings grief. The response here is directing our minds and our hearts to Christ for comfort and hope. Then there's another type of suffering, and that's the suffering of mystery. This is the one that comes on us by way of sickness, pain, and death that often seems pointless. Job. I mean, what, what do you say about that? I mean, you know the story of Job? Lost everything. It seemed pointless. I really love this Psalm 44, verses 17 through 19. It says this, All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals, which is like a desolate thing, and covered us with the shadow of death. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? There's a sense of rawness to this psalm that sometimes we have to get to. We have to be willing to open up to God and truly say, Why, God, why are you bringing me through this? Many of you know that the a journey that we've been on as a family for some time with pain and suffering in my wife. A decade. A decade of walking through this. As soon as we moved to Durham, pretty much right as we moved to Durham, strange things were happening. Later found out Lyme's disease. There are many people in this church actually walking through or have just finished walking through Lyme's disease. 
It's crushing. You don't understand it. And it causes you to stand there and say, why, God? And as I said earlier, if you're not, if you're surprised by this, it will crush you. My faith in Jesus has never been more challenged than when we were walking through this trial in our lives. There was even a point where I approached Pastor Lawrence and said, I don't think I can keep doing this, pastoring this church. And he said, oh, you're staying, buddy. It's going to make you a better pastor. And I'm going, no, I'm trying to get out. And you're like trying to keep me here. What's going on? He's like, no, stick with it. Lock eyes with the lover of your soul. And I did. And it was not easy. Because I like the sons of Korah, Psalm 44. Why, Lord, are you hiding your face at this time? Why are you doing this? I had a lot of questions. Spent a lot of time just seeking answers I couldn't find them, honestly, because there was this mystery shrouding this. And this is where we really can find sometimes our theology challenged. Our American idols, not the show, but our American idols really being refined from our hearts and lives. And it's painful. But I truly believe must persevere and place our trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Many Christians go through the fiery trial and they give up. They quit. Turning their backs on God and others, they quit church. They quit praying. They quit God. They quit serving. They quit believing. And I, you know what? I, some, on one hand, I get it. I get that. Because it's hard. So I don't want to condemn. Because I've been there. But yet, when we look when we persevere, and this is where verse 19 really helps. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Man, that word entrust means to make a deposit. Deposit everything into Christ. Place it all on Him. See, this is what He wants us to do. You see, in Christianity, what you see is the only God who ever suffered. No other world religion has a God who suffered. Except Christianity. God Himself died in the height of suffering. Jesus suffered socially. Jesus suffered physically and Jesus suffered spiritually even Jesus questioned 
this whole thing. Even Jesus in the garden said, let this cup pass. God, do I truly have to go through this? Even on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's okay to ask God why. It's okay to ask God to not have to go through it. It's okay to ask these difficult questions. Jesus himself did it. Which really helped me. Which really helped lighten this. You see, Jesus was cut off from God. Died in our place. Jesus knows the greatest suffering that the world has ever known. And He keeps those who believe in Himself from ever experiencing the greatest suffering. Because when we put our faith in Him, He removes us from the wrath of God. By bearing the wrath of God Himself. All of God's anger and injustice towards sin, or his, I mean, not his injustice, his justice towards sin, Jesus says, I'm keeping that from you. I'm taking it on myself. And he understood what that meant on the cross when he was like, whoa, whoa, my God, why? He went through the worst kind of suffering ever. And then he says, I'm going to shield you from that. You may go through some stuff, but I'm going to shield you from the worst. And that's the way of the cross. So this is what John Calvin says about this to the church. He says, that they might bear submissively their afflictions. Jesus reminds them that they had been long ago, these afflictions had been long ago foretold by the Spirit. But Jesus includes much more than this, for he teaches us that the church of Christ has been from the beginning so constituted. This is old 1500s way of saying this is the way it's going to be in the church. That the cross. Listen to this. The cross is the way to victory. And death is a passage to life. Therefore, no reason why afflictions should... I'm trying to get through this language. Basically, he says there's no reason why afflictions should depress us as though we were miserable under them since the Spirit of God has already pronounced us blessed. He says, afflictions must precede glory. These afflictions... Come before heaven. But heaven awaits. Jesus has passed through and given us a way. And that is how we truly live. It's a paradox. It's the flip of what American philosophy teaches. American philosophy says we should have to go through this, that to, today is my heaven. My life now is my paradise. So I'm going to do everything I can to make it good. Whereas Christianity says paradise awaits. And this is not good. If this is my best life now, I'm in trouble. 
So the band's going to come up. And I just want us to take some time to reflect on this. This is heavy, I know. But I think it's important for the church to have an established biblical theology of suffering because it's a part of what it means to be a Christian. Christianity involves a cross. And a cross is painful. So together, let's just spend some time praying. Bow your heads. Close your eyes. You're right there. God is with us. His Spirit is in this room. The Spirit of Christ reigns. And just spend some time with God, thanking Him for this passage to eternal life that we call suffering. Lord, we give this to You, this moment of praise and adoration, this moment of reflection on life and how on this earth we do have these fiery trials, but Lord, we know You are doing something in them. You're purifying Your church, You're sanctifying us that we may truly experience life in You. But that ultimately we can be reminded that this is not our home. This is not our paradise. That we have something greater wait, waiting for us. Eternity in heaven with you. Help our hearts to rejoice now. To love Jesus so much. And to worship you in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name, amen.